now time for our Bible reading. We'll continue reading from Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 4 to verse 29. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And your hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he saw the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, 
but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thank you, Reba. Um, well, if you've got your Bibles open there, that would be great if you keep them um, on that reading in Hebrews 12. And I want you to picture the scene. It's the Olympic Games in Mexico, 1968. A marathon is the final event of the program, and the Olympic Stadium is packed. There's uh, excitement as the first athlete, the Ethiopian runner, Mamo Waldi, enters the stadium. The crowd erupts as he crosses the finish line in first place. Way back in the field is another runner, a guy called John Stephen Arakawas of Tanzania. And he has been left behind long ago by the other runners. And at the halfway point, he fell and dislocated his knee. He injured his shoulder. He got treatment. And even though the officials were um, imploring him to retire, he refused. He carried on running. With his knee bandaged, um, Akawara, he picks himself up. He hobbles. He goes the remaining distance to the finish line, wincing at every step. And at 7 p.m., an hour after the other runners had um, come through. Akawara enters the stadium. There's just a few thousand people still there in the seats, but they're cheering him on. They're clapping as he painstakingly at slow pace goes round the um, track and collapses over the finishing line to the rapturous applause of the people left in the stadium. Now... There's a filmmaker called uh, Bud Greenspan who captured some of this story. And he later asked Jonathan, why did you do this? You're in so much pain and you couldn't win. And Greenspan recalls the, uh, Jonathan's reaction. He looked at me like I was crazy. Mr. Greenspan said, Akawara, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. Now, it's an inspiring story, isn't it? Not just starting a race, but finishing, no matter what. It's an inspiring story of discipline and vision melded together, rolled into one. In any sort of race, it's not just how you start, but how you finish that counts. And as we've been seeing in Hebrews, and here we are in chapter 12, the Christian life is this race. It is marked out for us. We're told that there in chapter 12, verse 1. A race marked out for us by Jesus Christ himself. It's a race of faith. It's a race that needs perseverance. It needs discipline. It needs vision looking to the future hope we have. And we can start well, but as the race goes on, we grow tired and weary. We can be tempted to give up. Perhaps it's like taking a breather at the side of the road, putting our feet up or dropping out of the race entirely. And the pastor writing to these Hebrew Christians with a Jewish heritage, probably living in Rome, 
knew that they had faith in Jesus Christ. They've started well. They've endured hardships. They're facing increasing persecution, both from the Roman authorities as well as isolation from friends and family. But throughout the letter, the pastor here lovingly warns them not to drift away, not to go back to the old covenant, the Jewish religious way of life. Don't settle for the shadow when you've got the real thing in Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from Christ. Instead, persevere. You can see it there again in chapter 12, verses uh, 1 to 3. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. You see, Jesus isn't just a wonderful example as we looked at last week. He is the one, the perfect Savior, who cut the path of salvation. Safe. The safest, most secure way. The only way to God through him. And so for us to draw near to God, we do that through what he has provided, forgiveness of sin through his death on the cross. We're reminded in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. So our faith is complete in Jesus. He is gloriously enough. That's what the writer of the Hebrews wants us to hold on to. And yet the Christian life is hard. There's suffering. It's difficult. To follow God's will is costly. Jesus endured opposition, and so will his followers. So here, in in verses 4 to 29 in this chapter, the, the pastor equips us to stay in the race by showing us the necessity, the love, and the goal of discipline. And that's what we're going to look at together. So here in verses 3 to 4, just... Um, refresh your minds, have a look at that if you're looking at it on your phone or in in the book. Verse 3, I'll just read it. Consider him who endured such opposition from, from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, there's a clear need for discipline in the Christian life because of sin. It's there quite clearly. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And again, back in verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The the writer's up front, the pastor's up front. Sin is a problem. This rebellion against God weighs us down. It's a hindrance. And there are two aspects to sin that are picked up in the passage here. First, there's sin caused by other people, mainly opposition and persecution, as we've been looking at throughout the letter. This was part of the Old Testament believers' experience as well in chapter 11, which we looked at over the last two weeks. Verse 35 of chapter 11, there were others who were tortured, some faced jeers, flogging, chains, and imprisonment. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Sin that comes as opposition from other people. And at this point, these Christians like much of us in the UK, hadn't experienced bloodshed, hadn't experienced loss of life for their faith. And we should be grateful, shouldn't we? Let's just pause, given everything that's going on in the world at the moment and in Europe. Let's just think about that gratitude we should have as Christians, that the Lord in his grace has deemed that we shouldn't experience loss of life and bloodshed for standing faithful to Jesus Christ in the UK. The charity Open Doors shares Tara's story, who, when she was 15 years old, living in India, her punishment for choosing to follow Jesus Christ was to be treated as though she was toxic. Having converted from Hinduism, her family stopped um, speaking to her. They refused even to eat food. 
that she had cooked, they said to her, everything, even water, would become impure if you touch it. Tara was an outcast in her home. Her family are wealthy. They've got 15 rooms in their home. And she was given a small separate room. And she says, nobody comes into my room. There's no physical contact. No one looks at me. They refuse to pay her school fees, her living costs. So Tara has to work as a day laborer to survive. I wonder how we would endure in such circumstances. Perhaps you experience that persistent resistance to the gospel from a family member or a colleague or a neighbor. Perhaps you feel excluded or left out from certain conversations, whether that's at school or college, whether that's at uni, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's at different social gatherings because of your faith. Do you watch yourself thinking maybe life would be more comfortable? You catch yourself thinking it would be yeah, maybe a bit easier if I wasn't so in love with Jesus or I just cooled my beliefs and my faith down a bit. I don't really need to be around other Christians as much. And anyway, doesn't it mean if I'm hanging out with non-Christians that sort of counts as evangelism? Yes, my resources are tight at the moment as well. It is it's pretty tough. So maybe generosity can be optional at this point. You see, that pattern of thinking which is caused and and started by opposition, actually plays into the second aspect of sin, which turns in on our own hearts. It's the struggle of our own sinfulness. And that's picked up later in the passage, verses 14 to 17, highlighting that self-centered appetite of sin. And there's that clear warning there. Look at verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. And to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it, no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, that that reference to bitter root is an allusion to um, Deuteronomy 29, where Moses is talking and and recalling the the warning of, of mixing together with other people. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord your God to go and worship the gods of other nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. It's interesting, the root of bitterness isn't so much a feeling as it is a person. Someone who abandons the way of the Lord, even leading others astray. And that was a real issue that the Hebrew Christians were facing. It is for us. Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Again, the writer brings this out in the next chapter, but the the Bible celebrates sex. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage. Proverbs 5 is a reverent description of rejoicing in the pleasure and satisfaction of sex that a wife and husband enjoy together, exclusively those two people. But again, in Proverbs 30, 20, we see that sexual immorality is likened to a person eating a messy meal, wiping their mouth and saying, I've done nothing wrong. You see, this is sex as no big deal. Sex is nothing special. It's what we do. It fills an appetite. And sex apart from marriage quickly becomes a product. It quickly becomes about what we consume. And if it gets too committed, too boring, well, we can walk away. Now, the pastor is warning, this 
this will break us. This isn't using the gift of God as intended. There's emotional damage that's caused between people made in God's image if this gift is used that way. There's spiritual damage. We're cut off from the Lord living this way. And then in verse 16, Esau is an interesting figure from the Old Testament, brother with Jacob, his father Isaac, is given here as a warning of godless behavior. See, Esau was an enormously privileged man. He, as Isaac's firstborn son, he was entrusted with the promises of God. He had been given his birthright, which included all those promises to Abraham to be blessed and to be a blessing to many nations. And you know what Esau did? He saw that birthright on the same level as a voucher to get a Big Mac meal for free. He was more interested at that point about his own comfort, his own gratification, than the future treasure of God's glory. You see, Esau then becomes not some distant character that just is a bit odd and in the Old Testament, but just like us. I'll settle for the easy route. I'll go for what my comfort needs and my, my gratification in this moment, my pleasure. And you see, the warning is in verse 17, it can't be undone. Regret isn't enough. The blessing's gone. The consequence final. And if we're running the race of faith, we need to know the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of that opposition, that persecution, that hardship, but also the struggle internally of our own sinful desires. We can't take that lightly. And so those verses here, verses 14 to 17, right in the middle of this chapter, are a warning. They're a reminder as well to be responsible, to help each other. Did you notice the community aspect in those verses? Let us make every effort to live in peace with one another. See to it no one falls short. It's a community project. We're to look after each other so that we don't drift away. We're to take sin seriously, and discipline is necessary because sin is real and holiness matters to God. And that leads us to look at this second point, which is both painful but gloriously hopeful as well, is that we see the Father's love for us in discipline. Look at verses 5 to 7. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? You see, the pastor is quick to remind his readers and us that God isn't some harsh drill sergeant. He's not giving the new recruits a, a, a beasting punishment of just to grind them down, you know, make them run up and down the hill ten times in the pouring rain carrying a log or something. And quoting from Proverbs 3 uh, gives us the context of this encouragement. 
Proverbs is a book of loving instruction from a father and mother to their eldest son. That's the context. God is the ultimate caring father who loves his children. He loves his children here this morning. Verse 5, he's addressing us as firstborn sons, those who receive the inheritance. In verse 6, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his children. Now, the power of this illustration in verse 7 to 10 is that comparison, isn't it, with the earthly parents? You saw that clearly, hopefully who even with all our limitations as parents, our weaknesses, our mistakes, we still discipline children as best we can for their benefit. Children need good boundaries. Children need to learn respect. Without discipline, well, they'll grow up convinced they are the center of the world. They'll grow up with that mindset, which just fuels even more mess in the world. One parent put it like this, by the time you're qualified, you're redundant. (laughs) But it's true that we all need parenting. I still need my parents to speak into my life and challenge me and encourage me and give me wisdom. We need each other as well, by God's providence, to play those roles in our lives who will speak wisdom into us. But how much more does God know what is ultimately good for us? His discipline has a purpose and an end goal, that we would share eternal life with him, that we'll be holy like him. It's there in verse 10. So yes, some of the present pain Christians experience is God's discipline, verse 7. That's the first thing to get straight in your heads and in our hearts. In other words, God, in his wisdom, allows suffering, whether it's from persecution, illness, or another hardship. It could be difficult work, it could be financial issues. Or he allows us to experience the consequences of our self-centered disobedience to his word, whether that's a relational pain that's caused by um, sexual immorality, whether that's the regret and the emptiness of greed, the isolation of cynicism and the bitterness that comes from that. Whatever the fruit of those self-inflicted sins are, to an extent, the Lord graciously allows them so that we can be trained Wow. Endure hardship as discipline. Now, when you think of Joseph in the Old Testament, he was one of the characters mentioned in chapter 11. You can see this quite clearly in his life. There's a bit of a roller coaster of his experience of of what we might call, as Derek Kidner, the Old Testament um, professor said, sunshine and frost in his life. Moments of encouragement and then hardship which develop and grow him and break him and change him. From those experiences with his brothers attempting to kill him to the injustice of prison, even though he was innocent, to the hard work he did for Pharaoh to help Egypt survive a famine, he is being discipled through all of those things. Those experiences both humbled and blessed him. And some of them were clearly the result of other people's sin, and some of it was his own arrogance. The only change that had to be worked in his life by God. And yet what we see is God discipling Joseph to such an extent that he is the one who's able to forgive his brothers. We see him restored to his family. We see his family blessed and rescued from famine. And not only that, but his faith has matured to such an extent that he 
reassures his brothers in these phenomenal words in Genesis 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That is the fruit, the practical reality of God's discipline in his children's life. One of my favorite films as a teenager was The Karate Kid. I'm talking to the first version as well. I do like the remake as well, but the first version in particular. And you've got this new kid in the neighborhood, Daniel LaRusso, who gets bullied by a gang and then is taken in by the wise and quietly spoken Japanese caretaker, Mr. Miyagi, who agrees to teach him karate. And when Daniel shows up for his first lesson, um, any of you who've watched the film will know this bit, he's given a whole list of chores to do. From waxing the cars, you know, wax on, wax off. From sanding the floor, from painting the fence, to um, painting the house. And several days later, sore, tired and frustrated, Daniel uh, erupts, accusing Mr. Miyagi of basically, you know, having a laugh and, and getting him to do all the jobs he didn't want to do himself. And he's come to learn karate, so what's this all about? And then Miyagi starts throwing punches and then barking the orders at Daniel, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, sand the floor. It's phenomenal, it all fits together, and as a teenager you're like, oh yeah, I'll go and do some housework now, and then I can beat people up. <laughs> Doesn't quite work like that, does it? Um, <laughs> but now the student can defend himself. He's learned a vital lesson. The whole time he was slaving over these tedious and painful jobs, he was being discipled in the way of karate. Now, sometimes the best training comes through trials, not comfort. Do you believe, well, thank you, <laughs> brother. Because <laughs> honestly, I think in the West, we really don't believe that. I think it's probably one of the weak, greatest weaknesses of Western Christianity. The best training comes through trials, not comfort. And yes, the uncomfortable truth about discipline is it hurts. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And this is a crucial point in our discipleship as followers of Christ. Because if we reject this reality of God and how he works, we essentially are nurturing the bitter root of idolatry. We're creating a God in our own image. Do you see the, the correlation we need to be convinced in our, in our head, here, in our mind, intellectually, rationally. And we need to be convinced here, in our heart, in our will, in our gut, that hardship is not a sign that God has given up on us. In verse 8, amen? It's all too easy to misread the pain we can experience. And there are two dangers that are highlighted there just in Proverbs 3. Did you see them? Firstly, we can make light of it. We can despise it. We can get angry at God about it. We'll sound like the older brother in Luke 15. All these years I've been slaving for you. Not even give me a goat. That's how it'll come out. God, you owe me. I go to church every time. I've been setting up chairs for them this morning. Can't you give me a break on Monday morning? Essentially, God is distant in that worldview. An unkind taskmaster, worse than the Channel 4 show, who, who 
owes us a comfortable life. The second danger is we lose heart. It's that gnawing insecurity that the father's reproof is personal rejection. I reckon that kind of fits with our time as well. You know, certainly that's probably where I find myself going to in dark moments. There's an insecurity. Have you abandoned me? Have you gone? And at the heart of both is a forgetfulness of who God is and what he is doing and taking him at his word. When the hardship comes and we call out to God for relief, this can be a window into our spiritual health. It's a tool. When we find ourselves saying, if God really loved me, he would dot, 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 dot. If God really loved me, he would, how would you fill the blank? He'd, he'd have given me that job. He'd have healed that family member. He'd have given me the husband or wife I really wanted. He'd have given me more financial security. He would have made me more popular, more successful. Whatever you put in that gap may well be an indication of where the hardship you experience is actually where God's disciplining hand is at work within you. We all have blanks. So what are you doing with the hardship? Is it making you defiant or discouraged? Are you prayerfully discerning and welcoming God's loving training? You see, we, we might think that reading a book or watching a few seminars or some YouTube videos from the comfort of our own home will train us in a whole bunch of stuff, whether that's learning a language, how to cook a great meal or something like that, or learning to play an instrument, um, making great shots on basketball three-pointers and stuff like this. And, and to some extent, they do help. But until we've got out and actually started on the basketball court or it, it, learning a language and actually in the place talking with someone in that language trying to start a conversation or buy something for, from a store and go through the pain barrier of being misunderstood of making mistakes of looking a bit foolish will never grow stronger and likewise in our own spiritual growth it, it matters in the everyday life what do you see when you look back on the way the Lord has worked in your life? How do you see your spiritual walk developing? When I look back on my own life, and I hope you do as well when you look on yours, you can see that the Lord has taught you so much. I know for myself, he's taught me through difficult times. And I know my difficult times are nothing in comparison with what some people have gone through whether it's because of my own arrogant sinfulness in relationships, whether it's because of my um, own, I don't know, the, the stuff that happens like exam results not going the way I wanted and stuff like this at school and college, whether it's the sadness of bereavements or the pain of conflict and broken relationships or the loss of physical health, which actually physical health is something that I think the majority of us would take for granted. This was made clear to me a couple of years ago during the pandemic, autumn 2020, when I had a particular episode for several weeks which affected my lower back and leg. And one night I was just lying awake, unable to sleep because my left leg 
felt it was in so much pain, it was in, on fire, and I just wanted to claw it out. And I couldn't sleep. I was in agony, in pain. I was counting down the minutes, which felt like hours, until I could take another dose of pain relief. And then I was worrying, what if I'm addicted? If, if this is the way, Lord, what happens? How, how do you live life? This pain is intolerable. Am I just going to be hooked on these, these painkillers? And if it won't go away, how am I going to do my work? And all this stuff is rolling around your head at three in the morning. And is my faith just fake now? Will it shrink away? I was losing heart. And I was also slipping into self-pity. But in that place, I was convicted to praise God in the pain. I, I wouldn't say it was an audible voice. I wasn't visited by an angel or anything. But it was so clear. I need to praise God in the pain. Worship him now. And I grabbed my phone and opened it up on one of my favorite worship playlists and just started quietly singing, not to wake anyone up, um, flat on my back, clutching my leg, how deep the Father's love. Now, please don't hear me sharing this in some sort of heroic way. It's not that at all. It's rather pathetic. It's rather small you've probably been through far worse. But the pathetic nature of it is precisely the point. Verse 12, feeble arms, weak knees, need strengthening. You see, God is a loving Father who knows each of us, what we're like. He knows what we need. He knows how to grow us as his children, and nothing is wasted by him, no matter how small it seems, whether it's a pain in the lower back and leg, whether it's one of the toughest bereavements you've ever gone through, and the loss is just ripping your gut out every day. Nothing is wasted. Because he is growing us to be mature and more in love with him, to want his holiness more and more in our lives. So expect discipline to come through the pain of personal confrontation by friends. Expect it when the suffering that God wisely allows in our life comes. All of his loving discipline is a way of knocking away the props which we rely on that take his place. He's just knocking them over because it is so much better to rest on him. And you see, God's perspective is that Jesus' is suffering on the cross, taking the punishment of our sins, has brought us full salvation. That love and acceptance are, are the motivation for the Father's correction. That's what motivates him, his love, his acceptance, what Christ has done for us. He will not waste. He will apply to us deeply. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit are united in one desire, and that is he wants us to share in his holiness. He wants us to see him face to face in glory. Hold that in mind during the discipline. And that's where we come to the goal, just finally and briefly. That's where I think verses 18 to 29 make sense of what's gone just before. Let me read those verses, 22 to 24. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem of angels, um, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, 
So the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, verses 18 to 29 really are a whole sermon in itself, and we'll have to come back to another point, I think certainly on something that as we look at worship together. But here the pastor, he's returning to... The contrast between the Old Testament encounter of God, which actually in, in that um, archetypal epoch way was at Sinai in Exodus 19, and contrasting that with the heavenly kingdom, which we are part of through Christ. And it's easy to see in verses 18 to 21, the mood at Sinai was terror. People wanted to turn off God's voice. In verse 19, even Moses trembled with reverent fear, we're told in verse 21, and that seems to be a response to the idolatry, which is all part of Sinai that happens when the golden calf is made. Sinai was a fearful place because the Lord God on the mountain was unapproachable in his holiness and because of people's sinfulness. Now that same God meets us in the spiritual Mount Zion his eternal heavenly city, the one that Abraham, the Old Testament believers, we're told in chapter 11, were looking forward to. And now the awesome thing is, guess what? We're part of it. We are part of it. All who are in Christ are part of that eternal city. And God hasn't changed. He continues to be a consuming fire, verse 29. He isn't a cuddly toy. And people, we haven't changed. We're still rebels born in sin. The difference is, did you see, Jesus. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, verse 24. One that is sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel was Adam and Eve's second son. He was murdered by his jealous brother Cain. God had warned Cain, but Cain turned away from God's word. He didn't listen. And when God came to judge Um, Cain, he said, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, Genesis 4. Abel's blood represents all those who have suffered unjustly. His blood cries out for justice. But we're also like Cain, in that we obviously may not have physically killed someone in anger, but we've definitely sinned against people, treating them with indifference, pride, or even hatred. In many ways, Abel's blood cries out against us. But there's a better word, Jesus' blood. That blood shed on the cross that says justice has been done. But this blood also pays the price for our sin in full. That blood of Jesus speaks mercy. A better word. Mercy. Mercy. We can draw near to God without restriction. We can enter into the joyful congregation where Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We saw that back in chapter 2. He's there going, they're mine. He knows us by name. That's the reality now for those in Christ Jesus. And there will be a final judgment that comes, verse 26, we're told, when all things will be shaken by God's justice. Even world leaders, even the events we're seeing now that are shaking the world will be nothing compared to that final day when the Lord's word reigns and shakes. And his word is final and his kingdom alone stands unshaken. And that is what we're part of by faith. 
Therefore, chapter 12 ends not only by calling us as a church family to to thankful, awe-filled worship as we started our service with that fantastic music, with the service even before the music started where people are serving one another, but it's also a warning to keep building on the rock of Jesus' word, to be the wise person in that parable he told of the wise and foolish builders in Luke 6. So that means we'll want to help each other, won't it? Pursue self-examination, spiritually speaking, to be clear in our thinking, to not be impulsive, to not take shortcuts to holiness. We'll also want to be people who welcome that resilience that comes through these hard knocks. We'll help each other become more prayerful and resourceful. I mentioned Tara earlier from um, India. She doesn't regret her decision for Jesus Christ, supported by the work that Open Doors does. She said, I know that Jesus is the true God. I can never substitute him for anything. Nothing can compare to the peace I've received in him. (laughs) Isn't she a blessing to us? That's a disciplined, wise, resilient disciple speaking. So when we gather together as God's people on earth, we will remember we're also gathering as God's people in heaven, joining with the angels, joining with the heavenly host. What we're doing here in this auditorium definitely resonates with God's glory where in his throne room right now. Doesn't that blow you away? Doesn't it make you hungry for more? For that unshakableness which our world is so desperately crying out for, it is here. It's open to all who will come to this Lord. Charles Wesley captured something of that joy in this hymn, And Can It Be? He wrote, Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You see, God is no longer fenced off and fearful for us. Father, Son, and Spirit invite us to come and worship. Realize there are no barricades No barbed wire around his throne of grace. And his discipline, therefore, is a sign of his love for us. So today, are you going to walk in that way? When it comes to tomorrow morning, and this feels just, oh, what happened on Sunday? Are you going to know that the Lord is your loving Father? That he will use what's coming up this week to help you grow in holiness? to live each day in the light of the reality of this unshakable kingdom which you are citizens of. And if you are not, can I implore you to take seriously this offer to come to know Jesus, to be part of his kingdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just this amazing reality that you are a loving father who does not give up on your own. That even in the hardship, even in those difficult things we face, that, Lord, they're not out of control. They won't shake us to the point of being lost and forsaken. But you are strengthening, you're refining, and we pray for more of that, Father. Would you give us reverence and awe in our worship to you? Would you give us gratitude that changes the way we look at each day and a hunger to share in your holiness through Christ our Lord. Amen.